Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, all the creatures were stirring. Four people and a mouse. The chimney started to rumble, a thick man down slid. With his slick, bright red suit on the carpet, he skid. Up jumped dear mother, oh no, not again. But the large man just sat there, and he started to grin. He nodded toward cookies, then he nabbed two or three. He guzzled a cup of milk. This filled him with glee. Then the white-bearded giant disrobed to his vest, and he plopped on the couch without time for protest. Four jaws hung open, disbelief colored their eyes, an awkward cloud grew, but the man still leaned nigh. He waved over the boy in his sweater of blue, and pointing his sausage finger, he said, hey, how are you? Okay, wow, there's a lot to unpack there, right? This is not the uh, traditional Christmas story that you've probably heard before, right? This man is pretty different from the normal Santa Claus. And did you, did you catch the difference here? Yes, the family was awake. Normally they're sleeping. But the bigger difference, he didn't have any presents. So here comes Santa, right? And uh, that would be the first complaint from the children. Where are the presents? And I can just hear my girls. What good is Santa without the gifts, right? What good is he if he doesn't bring presents? He's supposed to bring me stuff. You know, all of a sudden, without presents, we feel weirded out. We feel strangely standoffish toward the big red lug, right? We feel uh, like maybe, what is he doing here, you know? Uh, and just think for a moment before we go further, what does this say about our utilitarian stuff-centered culture when the man is bearing gifts we're like throwing open our doors open the chimneys we're okay to let him traipse about while our whole family's asleep in the house right but the moment that we realize he he doesn't give us anything or he doesn't bring us anything uh we we change our attitude toward him despite him being the same jolly big grandpa you know persona all of a sudden, we identify him as, you know, a creep. <laughs> we feel weirded out, right? We feel defensive or even maybe endangered when all that Santa wanted to do in that story is to bless you with his time, with his presence. Isn't that weird how such a shift can happen so easily? Well, Tony spoke week one in this series about God giving Jesus and the amazing gift that that was. And then last week, uh, my dad, Pastor Jared, he talked about Jesus giving himself, right? Jesus becoming the incarnation, fully God so he can solve our problems and fully man so he can relate to our problems, and, and my dad made a, a comment about three quarters through his message that I want to uh, bring out this morning. Part of the importance of Jesus giving himself at Christmas was to show me how I can connect to others and give myself to them. He mentioned that real passingly, and then he went on with the rest of his service about Jesus giving himself. But this is really kind of where we're going to jump off today. God gave us Jesus. Jesus humbly gave himself to his disciples, but also to us. And so, I give me. At Christmas time and beyond, to, to be an incarnation like Jesus, I want to give me. I want you guys to check out this brief video. This is another reminiscence on what an incarnation or what giving yourself might mean. Santa Claus, oh, and you won't complain, 
not my size In a twinkle in my eyes I could be Santa Claus And uh, we just see these ordinary people doing ordinary things, but because they're em- embodying this, this Christmas spirit, this, this idea of Christmas cheer, that they actually become an incarnation of sorts of, of the idea of Santa Claus. And just like Zeke mentioned, we last week talked about the incarnation of God come as a man in Jesus. And... Um, and this week, we're going to kind of continue that thought that if Jesus was the incarnation of, of God in the flesh, that as we carry the, the Holy Spirit within us and, and the Spirit works through us, then we become an incarnation of Jesus. That through the Spirit working in us, people see Jesus rather than ourselves. Just like in the commercial, you see Christmas cheer and you see Santa. Um, and so if, if that is what Christmas is about, that we become like Jesus, we become that incarnation of Jesus, then just like Jesus Christ gave himself, we have to give ourselves. So we're going to start by first off uh, looking at how do we give ourselves to the lost? How do we give ourselves to people who don't know who Jesus is? And then Zeke is going to come back up and talk about how do we give ourselves to our community, our church, our brothers and sisters. Um, so for the first thing, uh, Write this down. I think this is in your notes. Um, We must be an incarnation of Christ to lost people. And so I I was really thinking about this, and I really dug it out, and and I think that that Jesus is probably the best example that we have of, of, um, of what Jesus looks like, right? Jesus is probably the best example of how to live like Jesus. And so... We're just going to turn to Jesus, and we're going to start, go figure, a Sunday morning at church, we talk about Jesus. That's where we're going to start. Um, and on this one example, Jesus is uh, on his way to this guy named Jairus' house. And Jairus was, uh, he, he worked in the temple, he was a Jewish leader, and um, he, he recognized what Jesus was doing. And so he, he uh, called him over one day and said, my, my daughter is really sick, and I need you to come and heal her. So he grabbed Jesus and brought him to his house. And so they're, they're walking to his house, and, and Jairus explains, my, my daughter is about to die. She is, she's on the doorsteps of, of death. She's just really sick, and, I, and I, we need to get there now. And as they're walking there, this, this crowd forms because Jesus is, is really popular at this time. He's been doing miracles. He's, he's been teaching, and the crowd has been following him throughout his ministry. And so this, this crowd grows in the street to the point where he is bumping into this crowd, just trying to, to make his way to where he needs to be, to make his way to this healing. And, and we look at that, and, and we're thinking, like, man, this is a pretty pressing issue. He needs to get there quick, and this crowd is, is hindering that. He, he can't move quickly through the crowd. And the other part of that is in this crowd, there's this woman, and She's been having this, this issue of bleeding for years and years. Um, and, and the thing is, is that she, she really shouldn't have been there because, because she was bleeding, she was made unclean. So she couldn't be there. She's not supposed to be there. And yet she, she hatches this, this plan to go and touch the robe of Jesus, thinking, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Um, and, and to do that, she kind of has to, to hide herself in the crowd because she, she can't be there otherwise. 
And so this is what we, we read about this woman um, in Mark chapter 5. It says, And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And just, just picture that, that this crowd is forming, this, this hurry is developing, and, and you just feel this sense of urgency to, to, to move past what, what's going on, to move past the crowd and just walk towards where you feel like you need to go. And Jesus stops, and the disciples are like, what are you doing, Jesus? And he's like, I, 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 I need to look around because something just happened. And Jesus recognized that there was, there was something that changed in the air. I love what, what Luke has to write about this. In, in Luke chapter 8, verse 47, it says, And the woman saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. I, I love that idea, and you can write this down. Um, that she could not hide. And I don't think this has a bad connotation to it at all. I don't think this is like a, she couldn't hide from the scary things that were happening. I I think this was, she felt like the Lord and the creator of the universe saw her. And, and I don't know, the, the scripture doesn't say, I, I don't know if Jesus was, was looking in her direction. I don't know if he was holding his gaze on her eyes, knowing what had just happened, or if he was just looking around the room and she felt seen. But she, she felt seen. She felt valued by God. And the thing is that, that yes, she was healed. And, and it, that is an important part of the story. I think that's that's a pretty essential part of the story, that she was healed. But even more than that, Jesus recognized the suffering that she had been going through. He saw in her eyes, saw uh, who she was, and, and knew her story that she had been struggling with this for years and years. And, and not just struggling with the actual ailment, but suffering because she couldn't be in intimate community with, community with the people around her because of it. And, and, and honestly, she had thrown so much money at trying to figure this out, going to physician after physician. She was broke. And, and this was her last hope. She was, this was her, her last plan. What Jesus does is he sends her away after healing her in, in peace with no more suffering and she may have left healed, but what, but what she actually leaves with is, is a value placed on her life that can only come through the love of Jesus. And so that's where we begin this idea of what does it look like to give myself? What does it look like to be an incarnation of Christ in the Christmas season? And again, Jesus is a great example of how to live like Jesus. But, but how do we translate that into our lives? How do we translate that as, as the church? And, and so I think this is another Good example. Um, there's a, there's uh, a story of Paul and Silas as, as Paul is on his missionary journey, and they, they travel to a place called Philippi. And when they get there, there's this young woman, this, this girl who has a spirit in her, and she's able to uh, do divination and do different things, and, and it's not great, right? She's, she's a slave girl, and her owners are using her to make money uh, based off of this spirit that is in her. And Paul finally gets fed up. I, I think it's funny because the scriptures say Paul finally gets annoyed and casts this demon out like he's just tired of hearing it after, after a while. And he's like, all right, just get out of here. I'm tired of hearing you. Um, and I think that's funny. But uh, he casts this demon out and, and because, or the spirit out. And because of that, they, the owners get really mad 
And they rile up this crowd and they beat Paul and Silas and they tear their clothes and they end up throwing them in prison. And so we get, uh, we get this story out of it in Acts 16. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So not just the prison, but the inner prison, fastening their feet. They're not getting out of here. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. See, think about this for just a second. God is the one who caused the doors to open. God's the one who caused the earthquake to happen. And, and I was just thinking about this. If, if I'm in the shoes of Paul and Silas, and, and throughout the night I'm singing worship songs, I'm praising God, and I'm praying to him, just trying to figure out, Lord, what am I supposed to do next? What do you want me to do? And this, this massive earthquake happens, and my shackles come undone, and the doors fly open. I'm probably not going to sit there and be like, Lord, is this the sign? Is this it? No, I'm, I'm going to walk my way out of that prison. Because I'm going to feel like, this is what I've been praying for. This is what I've been waiting for. And I, I kind of think that, that that's what Paul and Silas thought too. And this is just me thinking. This is not in, in the scripture. But, but there's a period of time. And there's an implied period of time where the, the, the jail cells open. The earthquake happens. And then, later on, the jailer wakes up. And, and so there's this moment, this, this period, where we don't get any explanation. And, and so I think Paul and Silas are people, and, and they, they tend to think like people. And so I think that, that Paul and Silas, the, the doors open, and they start to make their way out. And, and as they step out of their cell and they look down the hall, they see the jailer asleep, and they realize that if I keep on walking, he dies. And in that moment, they're overwhelmed with compassion and mercy, knowing that their freedom is costing someone else their life. Like I said, I don't know if that's how it happened or not, but but what we do know is that Paul and Silas had no idea what was coming next for them. If they chose to stay in that cell, they didn't know what was going to happen. But yet it was for the sake of someone who they had never met, and, and honestly, someone that they could probably easily put the blame on their situation for, that they chose to stay because he didn't, he didn't know. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know salvation. He didn't know true life. And so they, they stayed, and they sacrificed their freedom for the sake of of someone to maybe know who Jesus was. And the jailer responds, he goes, how how do I know this salvation? How how do I have salvation? Exactly, Sam. And and I love this because Luke wrote the book of Acts. He he wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the the book of Acts. And, And in both of those books, Luke often uses this word salvation with kind of a double meaning. So we know that the spiritual salvation where this need for Christ, this need for a change and repentance where, where, uh, where Jesus completely transforms our life, right? That's the, the spiritual salvation, this idea of, of salvation. But there's also this physical salvation, and he uses it throughout both of these two books. And, and it's this idea that uh, 
I'm facing death or I'm facing illness or I'm facing an injury and I, and I need help from it. And so it's this physical, get me out of whatever situation I'm in kind of salvation. And I think that's what the jailer is talking about. I think the jailer says, I'm a security guard and I slept through an earthquake. That's not a great look for me. And my boss tends to kill people if they don't do what they're supposed to do on the job. So I'm going to go to Paul and I'm going to say, how do I make, make, make it out of here alive? How do I not get sentenced to death in the morning? And Paul, knowing exactly what he's asking, skips the question and goes directly to the heart of what he needs to hear. You're asking about how not to be killed, but I'm going to show you what true life is. The jailer's life was, was just radically changed in this moment. And he ends up being saved. His, his family ends up being saved, like we read. And he's able to place his trust in Jesus Christ. But it started because he was able to place his trust in Paul and Silas in that moment. What started as an opportunity and an open door to freedom for Paul and Silas turned into an open door to share the gospel and to share life with someone who desperately needed it. So think back to that, that Coke ad that, that we watched. Anyone can be Santa. You know, this, is, this season, this month, is, is one of the, the, the busiest times of the year for nonprofit organizations. It's the time of the year where everyone wants to go and serve, whether you are Christian or not. The nonprofits are, are busiest this time of the year, whether they are religious nonprofits or if they have nothing to do and want nothing to do with the church. Because this time of year, people like to serve. They like to share that Christmas cheer. Christmas cheer is the first step in giving of ourselves. But going beyond that is where we become the incarnation of Christ, where people can see Jesus in us. If we look at Jesus, Paul, and Silas, they, they paused amidst the urgency of their situations to be present in the moment. They invited peace amongst fear. When, when, when the woman and the jailer came to them with fear and trembling, they, they offered peace in that moment. They moved past the uncertainty of their situations into proximity or a closeness with, with the lost and the hurting. And they placed their own well-being and plans beneath those who needed Jesus. So this is what it looks like to be the incarnation of Jesus this season. To slow down. To widen our field of view. And, and to look at what Jesus is doing around us to listen to that quiet whisper in the middle of a noisy crowd. It looks like recognizing the needs around us, not just the physical need, but the need for an intimacy and a closeness and a relationship with the creator of the universe who came down as a little baby to be with us. To place more value on how the kingdom of heaven is invading earth, an invasion that started in the manger, that we get to participate in rather than on my little kingdom and how this inconvenience may be affecting me. That's what it looks like to be an incarnation. Thank you, Nathan. I totally agree. And as we move forward, I want to bring to mind uh, something that Pastor Victor says all the time, which is you're never more like Jesus than when you are serving, right? Have you heard that before? You're never more like Jesus than when you are serving. Well, to, the, to this morning, we're really talking about that. We're talking about when you're on your knees or when you're giving up something of yourself to make room for somebody else. That, that is becoming like Jesus to the lost world. And now I want to turn our attention to becoming an incarnation to our family. Becoming an incarnation to our family were shown in the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church 
examples of both of these, being an incarnation to the lost world, being an incarnation to our family. Now, first thing to notice is that I've said our family and not your family or not the family, but our family, because there's a double meaning here. We're called to be an incarnation, both to our immediate family, but also to this family, to brothers and sisters in this room, right? It's equally as important to be an incarnation to your immediate family and to the church, to be an incarnation in the family of God, in your small group, in our youth program, wherever you exist in the context of church, to be an incarnation of Christ. And so here, here's the note, really, if you want to put it this way. We must be an incarnation of Christ to those closest to us. We must be an incarnation of Christ to those closest to us. Christ was fully God, incarnated as a human being, right? So we, as human beings, become an incarnation when Christ is in us and we give to others. And that's what we're after this morning. So before we uh, kind of get into to the examples here, I want to imagine for a moment the busyness of Chris, Christmas. I don't know where you do your Christmas shopping, Fort Smith, uh, maybe New York or somewhere, right? But here's the thing. We're, we're, did anybody fly to New York for Christmas shopping? Probably not. But here's the thing. We're trying to get, at this time of year, a lot of us, specialty groceries or specific gifts. And we find ourselves, especially probably next week, the week before Christmas, hurrying around, getting the last-minute things, trying to get it all figured out uh, because we have feasts and celebrations coming up. And, 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 and I don't know about you, but sometimes this is what Target or Walmart, even in Mina feels or in Fort Smith feels like, just people packed in there, right? Uh, you got that classic image of reaching for the last can of spam only for someone else to snatch it out of your way, right? And there it was, what you needed for your feast, and now you're not going to have it, right? Um, I know there are some of you that probably have your ducks in a row. Sam and I's uh, close friends, Spencer and Wendy, they, they started Christmas shopping in July, right? Which I don't know how they have that kind of uh, discipline, but for us, we're not there. And so this next week is going to be wild and crazy and busy for us, right? Hustle and bustle when December the 20th hits. But I want you to think about this whole idea of busyness this time of year and overlay it at like first century Jerusalem market. Okay, so, so the crazy busy, which by the way, I don't know why this depiction has a kid in a baseball hat, but we're not going to go into it. <laughs> the idea here is, is that the market is kind of what we're after. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't notice that until it was in the computer, and I thought, that's odd. Um, but imagine this, because this, I think, is a, a decent depiction, and you've probably never thought this thought before. This is a, a semi-accurate description of what the preparation and hurrying was like in Jerusalem leading up to the Passover. The gathering of stuff, the preparing for, for literally, I don't know if you know this, millions of people would influx into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So gathering for your family, for the feast, or maybe, like I said, for, for travelers who are going to be staying at your inn or your B&B, right? But everyone is gathering stuff, and, and, and the busyness of the season is crazy, and it's in that moment that Jesus enters. And of course, people, there's the triumphant entry and everything, but in the middle of that, Jesus stopped everything, and he invited his closest friends to a meal, right? He, he invited his brothers. Now notice here, it's not his physical family. It's his disciples, his brothers, who were living in his community with him, his small group, his church. He invited them to sit for a moment, and I want us to look at this loving moment between Jesus and his, and his disciples as an example of what it looks like in the middle of this crazy season to give yourself to those that are close to you in your life. We're going to kind of breeze through it pretty quickly. 
but we're reading it this morning from the Amplified Version, which just kind of takes a lot of the literal text and sometimes expounds the thoughts that uh, people have read into it over the years in brackets, so you know what is um, maybe extra biblical. All right, so check this out. Before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his hour had come, and it was time for him to leave the world and return to the Father. Having greatly loved his own who were in the world, he loved them and continuously loves them with his perfect love to the end eternally. Verse 2, it says, It was during supper when the devil had already put the thought of betraying Jesus into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that Jesus, knowing that the Father had put everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was now returning to God, got up from the supper, he took off his outer robe, and taking a servant's towel, he tied it around his waist. And, and, and this is where we probably get the foremost image of you're never more like Jesus than when you're serving. Because here is Jesus stooping to his knees to wash his disciples. He got up, took the place of a servant, and readied himself to do a task that wasn't desirable, probably wasn't fun, unless Jesus had a thing for cleaning, right? Some of us do, some of us don't. I live with somebody who does, and I'm really thankful for that. But, but Jesus, right, he serves his disciples. Let's keep reading on how does this moment progress, right? He pours water into the basin. He begins washing his disciples' feet, wiping them with a towel, which was tied around his waist, when he came to Simon Peter, he said, Lord, uh, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replies, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but you will fully understand it later. In other words, yes, I'm going to wash your feet. <laughs> Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet! Exclamation mark. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And I love this part of the Amplified text. It says, it's kind of like what that means we can have nothing to do with each other. Unless I wash you, we can't have anything to do with each other. Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, in that case, uh, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me, again, exclamation mark, which I think is Peter's middle name. And then Jesus said to him, anyone who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean, and you, my disciples, are clean but not all of you, and of course he's referring to Judas, for he knew who was going to betray him. For that reason, he said, not all of you are clean. In the middle of this moment of love and service, what did we find Jesus doing? He's teaching them. He's sharing his knowledge with them, sharing wisdom with them. He's also just having dialogue. He doesn't have any device or tool in his hand it's, it's just him and his disciples having FaceTime with each other during this. And I love it because it continues here in verse 12. Uh, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer robe, and then he reclined at the table again. And then continues the conversation. Do you understand what I've done for you? Jesus reclines, and he offers, in my opinion, in this story, the most love he's offered yet. He offers his full attention by asking a curiosity question. Do you understand what I've done for you? And then he wants them to respond so he can just listen and be present with them. The scripture continues uh, in this meal that they're having together. You call me teacher and Lord, and, and you're right in doing so, for that's who I am. So if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet as well. For I gave you this, this evening, you know, this moment, as an example, so that you should do in turn as I did to you. I assure you, and I most solemnly say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. 
if you know these things, you are blessed, happy, and favored by God. If you put them into practice and you faithfully do them. Jesus isn't unclear or murky here. In the middle of this showing love, listening, reclining at the table, just being present, he stops all of that to say, this banner, this way of being is your charge. I'm asking you to go and do this, to love each other like this. Do you see what you're experiencing me from me this, this evening, my brothers? Go and do the same. This is how you love. Doing this, you're blessed and happy and favored by God. And what a beautiful picture of what it means to be in an incarnation to each other that we have in Jesus, offering full presence and attention. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> one thing I'm struck by here is, is the same conundrum we faced earlier on, right, with the weirdo Santa. Sometimes when we hear somebody wanting to ask us a question and just be present with us and listen to us, we immediately go in our mind to that, you know, that peering uh, uncle that we have, right, who they uh, want to ask us some deep question every time that we're with them and would they get on they definitely like make our avoid at all cost lists because we know that if they corner us at gatherings we're going to be there for like hours trying to explain our life to them right and 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 but it's shown here Jesus giving his presence and attention asking questions wanting to just be with them that that is an ultimate expression of love right i think of the mother, or again, the uncle at Christmas time, which I don't know if you've ever had this experience in my family. We had it a few years ago, who kind of has an outburst and alarm after dinner when we're all sitting there in the living room and people are on their phones watching TV and they say, what are we doing? You know, why are we all just watching TV? Why are we just on our phones? Can we not just enjoy each other's company? Well, maybe they were onto the right track. Now, I don't know that it's necessarily, it needs to be uh, discussed like that, right? But what would it look like for you to focus this season more on serving, on sharing love and hope by offering your full presence and your attention with listening ears? In doing this, we embody Jesus' method of loving his brothers so well. We've got one more short, very, very short passage of Scripture we're going to look at, and this is... Um, the early church, right? In Acts 2, Peter gives a sermon to a bunch of onlookers as well as early believers. And at the end of his sermon, 3,000 people are added to the body of believers. And then we get a few verses that we've referenced here at the crossing, probably ad nauseum at this point. But this shows us some of the ways that the early church interacted with each other. Okay? So let's just read it really, really quickly together. So then... Those who accepted his message were baptized. And on that day, about 3,000 souls were added to the body of believers. They were continually, this is what happened next, the body of believers were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles, to fellowship, to eating meals together, to prayers. A sense of awe was felt by everyone, and many wonders and signs attesting miracles were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed in Jesus as Savior were together, and they had all things in common, considering their possessions to belong to the group as a whole. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing the proceeds with all the other believers as anyone had need. Day after day, they met in the temple area, continuing with one mind, breaking bread in various private homes. They were eating their meals together with joy and generous hearts, praising God continually having favor with all of the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, this morning, we're not going to get into the more radical aspects of that because I, th I think that there's some interesting things to discuss there and, and especially how they relate to um, Luke writing this in the context of first century Mediterranean world and what families looked like back then and how they shared resources. But, but what I want to especially point out were the ways that they gave themselves to each other. Meals, meal time, presents, scripture study, learning from the apostles, kindness and joy. 
they celebrated together, they praised together. And, and as we read here in this last verse, they had frequent, highly prioritized meeting times together. I think we're beginning to round out now maybe an image of what it looks like to be an incarnation. Yes, at Christmas time, but at all times. And, and as Nathan and I met, like we were really amazed as we realized that there are some foundational attitudes and, and some common actions that really underlay this whole system, both in giving yourself, being an incarnation to lost people, but also in being an incarnation to those who are closest to you. There are some common things that seem to thread through each of these. And I, I'm, I'm going to say this morning, maybe lay a bedrock for us to start to become an incarnation to those around us. Now, many of us do this and do it well. But as we finish this morning and as we get ready to launch into this Christmas season and into the new year, I want to challenge us to take a new step in becoming or being an incarnation of Christ to the world, lost or close to you, it doesn't matter. But we must embody Christ by giving ourselves to the world, by giving ourselves to each other. So this morning, we're going to end this way. Four ways, four commonalities between these different stories that we see that we can be an incarnation to others. Four ways to be an incarnation to others. The first thing, and I'm going to cover, we see this in all four stories that were shared this morning, meet physical needs. How can you be an incarnation like Jesus, like the early church? Well, <laughs> we see it so clearly. Jesus met the need of the woman who was bleeding, healing her body. Paul looked out for the jailer's physical well-being as well as his spiritual well-being by thinking of the jailer's life before his own, right? We, and he mentioned that a minute ago. Jesus physically served his disciples in two ways. One, feeding them, preparing a meal. But secondly, he physically cleaned them. He washed their feet, it was a need that they had. Man, y'all's feet are kind of dirty. Would you mind if I washed them? Do that at your small group tonight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then we have this final one where the early church clearly gave up a lot to meet each other's needs through meals and apostolic prayer meetings. And, of course, we have um, references there to miracles happening there as well. So we have an easy first step in being an incarnation this Christmas season and beyond. And that would be as a church, <clears throat> well, two, okay, twofold. First, as a church, meeting the physical need of someone in the community, like, like we're doing this weekend, wrapping their gifts, where maybe that would be a costly thing for them to do. Physically, we're giving them a gift by wrapping their presents for them or, or giving them a cup of hot chocolate and saying, stay warm, hang out in here while we wrap your gifts. Or in the springtime, we meet physical needs by constructing a porch for someone who can't do it on their own. We have a couple guys in our church that are giving firewood to, to elderly people who can't cut their own firewood anymore. That is meeting physical needs, okay? So that's what we can do as a church. But, but you, yes, you, that's sitting here this morning, all of you, in your circle or even on your own, you can meet someone's physical needs by, by hosting a meal by buying a person a cup of coffee, by baking someone a cake, right? You can, you can do the same for the lost people, like your neighbor or that person at work that you've had on your heart for a long time. Oftentimes, meeting a physical need is an inroad for conversation and relationship. If you ask me, how do you, how do you go about doing discipleship and relationship ministry, Zeke? I would say, the first thing I often do is say, hey, would you meet me for a cup of coffee? Would you have lunch with me? Because meeting a physical need, starting there, can give you kind of a, a, a birth to have conversation, to develop a relationship. And Jesus illustrated this so perfectly. So what physical need might you meet this season 
to um, become an incarnation for somebody. Yeah, so we, we can meet physical needs. We can also um, give our time and presence. And we kind of saw that in, in several of these stories as well, that, that just this time of year, it, it can feel hurried if we let it, and it can, it can feel rushed. And, you know, that kind of hurry that, that Jesus probably felt in the middle of that crowd trying to push through the sea of people on, on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and that, and that same kind of hurry that families felt as they gathered ingredients and, and went to the, the street market during the Passover festival and, and, and preparation of that feast, and just that same kind of hurry. And we can feel that pretty, pretty easily. And, and when we look at Jesus, he, he had this ability to slow down, to have patience, which is hard in and of itself, but he had patience, and he trusted that whatever was going to happen, well, he, he put, put that in the Father's hands, that if he stopped to look at this, this woman, that God would take care of Jairus' daughter. And so he, he placed his trust in the Lord as he, has, as he had patience. And then the early church adopted these same attitudes as they were singing praises to the hopeless people, you know, and, and loving them not knowing what was going to happen and, and uh, just, just pausing to be with them. And, and this, this moment of intimacy of Jesus slowing down this, this week of craziness, the, the culmination of his life. And he slows down and he washes the feet of the disciples. And this, this, just, this moment of patience and slow and methodical thinking and so I just want us to, to process that, that as we prepare for, for Christmas gatherings, as we shop for, for gifts, as we um, gather food, as we decorate our homes, as we, we do all that kind of stuff, we, we're preparing for the Christmas celebration. Or even just in this season, we, we can feel that rush. We can feel like that, that pull to just move from one thing to the next. And, and especially... With me, I, I don't know if most guys are like this, but like I have one thing on my mind at a time, and if there's anything else that comes in my way, I just beeline it right past that. And I think that the danger is that is that I, I can be trying to to find gifts or, or find uh, you know pick up that last minute ingredient that we need for dinner that night, and I walk right past someone who needs to hear Jesus, and I can completely miss it because I'm so focused on what my mind thinks I need to be doing right now. And we just walk right past it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that gifts and, and things like that are, are wrong by any means. That's, that's not what I'm getting at here. But they all have the ability to pull us away from the direction Jesus is trying to get us to look in. And so we have to be aware of that moving forward. And we have to, to slow our minds down to, to open our eyes to see what he is actually doing around us. Um, we sing that song, We Make Space, and I think that's a good image of it, that we, we just create this space in our life where, um, just like Zeke was talking about, as, as we meet these, these physical needs in our community, that as we do that, we, we just create this space create the time in our schedule, in our mindset, in our, in our perspective of things to say, you know what, I'm going here to meet this need, but I'm also going to allow a moment of conversation and of laughter. And, and I'm going to give time, give space for the Holy Spirit and for Jesus to do something amazing in this moment. And if I just go from doing the good thing to the next good thing, to the next good thing in this season. And that's, that's great, but we miss out on the opportunity for, for Jesus to do amazing things in that moment. And we, we have to slow down and to give our time and to give our presence in order to be able to do that. Yeah, and as we do that, number three, uh, listen. <clears throat> listen in love. Listen in love to those who are close to you. Listen in love to the lost people. But when you have an opportunity to give your time, give your presence, this one we learned so, so, so great from Jesus. While he gave his presence, he also listened, right? He paid attention. Listening to the Father to know there was something wrong in the woman's life. Um, listening also to his disciples. 
He didn't cut off Peter when he said, what are you doing, Jesus? You're going to wash my feet? He didn't say, Peter, stop talking. I'm going to love you, right? No. Sometimes I have the tendency to do that with my children. Like, just, just stop talking and trust me, right? No, Jesus listened. Jesus listened. Then responded in love. And so this morning, I want to say this. I heard a talk claiming one time that listening is the most loving thing that you can do for another person. Ask a curiosity question and then really lean in. Pay attention and get this, respond. Not just like listen and don't say a word back to them, but actually respond with with either clarifying questions or with, you know, just responses like basic human conversation like, yeah, or wow, you know, Really show them you're paying attention. That is an embodiment of love. I also want to, you know, point that out here. It's not just listening. It's listening in love. I've been guilty of listening, hearing someone, what they're saying, um, mostly because it's just expected of me, you know, but in my heart, I'm really not paying that much attention. I'm thinking about myself or what I'm about to go do. Or, or how busy I am, or man, what a crazy weekend it's about to be. And I'm not really listening. I'm just kind of hearing them. I've even been guilty of, you know, thinking about what I'm about to say in response, or just wishing they would shut up so I could get on just being real. And I also want to address, before I'm done talking about listening and love, this is the last little example. How can you listen in love without becoming that, you know, peering uncle that's like, so what have you been doing in your life this year, you know? Because we don't want to be that, right? So uh, here's some thoughts. Let them lead the conversation, right? Or, or just make sure that your interest in them is unselfish, and it's based on what they're sharing, not what you're demanding. So let me give you an example here. Imagine your nephew quit their job recently. And you're concerned he's turning into one of those millennials who doesn't do anything, right? Instead of saying, do you have anything on the radar at all since you quit? What if you tried, so what's next for you? Or... What are you most looking forward to in 2024? And then listen. Just listen. I think that is a way to be an incarnation of Jesus. It doesn't mean you can never share advice. It doesn't mean that you let everyone walk all over you. But a listener is a person that's like Jesus. Because we see him doing that. One of the last things that, that we see in, in, in just the biblical story, in, in the Christmas story, um, you know, the, the Christmas story, one of the first things that happens is the shepherds are out in the field and the angels come out and they, they start singing these, these praises. And they say, uh, they, they proclaim that the king has come, that he's, he's here to bring peace on earth to a to all with those whom he is pleased. To peace on earth. That's one of the, the earliest proclamations about Jesus in the manger is that he came to bring peace. And as we saw in, in all four of these stories, that, that the end of the story was this moment of peace where Jesus sending the woman away in peace with no more suffering. The jailer going back home not in fear, but in peace of whatever may come, trusting that the Lord will be his savior. This, this peaceful moment of, of the Lord coming down and getting down on his knees and washing dirty, nasty, smelly feet of grown men who walk barefoot and in sandals all day long. So what does it look like for us to invite peace through mercy, to be that incar incarnation. I kind of thought of it like this, that, that 
it's mercy that leads us to compassion, to go and, and meet a physical need around us. And, and because of that physical need, we're, we're able to, to be intentional in that moment, to value that person, that they're seen, not just by us, but through us, Jesus. And, and, and because we value them, because they're seen, then that transitions into the, this conversation where we're not just quick to leave that moment, but we're quick to listen. And we're quick, quick to, to be there with them and, and to hear them out, hear their story, know what God is doing in their life, maybe without them even realizing that that's what God is doing in their life. And, and from that, that, that getting to know them, that seeing them as a person, hearing their story, we, we begin to, to have that, that compassion for them and want to share the peace that we have had in our life with them. Maybe that's through our words, but maybe it's just through being present, the things that we do. And so we invite them into the same peace that we've had. And then we get back to the place of, I have experienced that peace time and time again, so it leads me back into mercy for the people around me just like Jesus had mercy on me. And so we go in through the cycle of peace that leads to mercy, that leads to peace, that leads to mercy. I think one of the things that, that we that, that Zeke and I kind of kind of felt in talking through this is that if we're honest with ourselves, most of us feel the pull of busyness in this season. There's a lot of things to do. There's a lot of people to be around. There's a lot of places to go. There's a lot of Christmas parties. There's a lot of service opportunities. There's just a lot of things that we have going on on, on top of our normal lives. And, and if, we, if we're honest, we can feel that pulling us. So maybe you feel that this morning. Maybe as you're getting ready for, for Christmas gatherings and things like that, there's a tension that's been brewing in your family and you're really just not looking forward to Christmas Day because it's been building. And you know that, that sitting across the table, may just, it may be awkward. It may be tense. Someone may be bring, up, bring up politics and you're not ready for that. Maybe you're dreading that Christmas celebration. And maybe you're here today and you can't relate to anything we talked about and you have no idea what to think about Christians and you have no idea what to think about the birth of Christ. And the virgin birth is just uncomprehensible to you. And I feel you on that. And maybe that's where you're at. Wherever you are on that spectrum, I just want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this that Jesus is inviting you into something special this season. He's leading you to do something great. It's not a question of if it's gonna happen, right? It's a question of when will it happen? Where will I be? Who will it be with? How is he gonna work through me? It's not an if, it's a when. And so we have the chance this morning before ever getting into that situation, before that opportunity comes up, we have the, the chance this morning to make the decision right here, right now, to live as an incarnation of Jesus. And so I just wanna sit with a couple of questions this morning. As we think about these four different things, ways we can be an incarnation to others, I just wanna ask, are you ready? Before that moment even comes up, are you going to decide, I'm gonna watch out for it. And when it happens, and in that moment, I immediately recognize it for what it is, and I'm ready. And are you willing? Are you willing to give yourself, to slow down, be patient, to see what God is doing around you, say, you know what? It's not about my kingdom. 
It's about that kingdom that invades earth. And I want to be a part of that one.